0: Thanks for listening to the Vines podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that.
1: While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it, it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, I am, leading, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple court teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophet might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Thanks be to God.
0: Hi, guys. Hi, yeah, my name is Fabs. My name is Fabian, but you can call me whatever you would like. Any variation of that name. For one year in eighth grade, I went by Anne with an E, of course. If You get that reference? Um, Okay, today I get the pleasure of wrapping up our series that we've been going through this summer. We've been talking about these different moments with Jesus. Each week we've looked at a moment with Jesus that's been particularly impactful to whoever is sharing that week. So I get the pleasure of wrapping that up and as you can tell, I picked a really light, nice, easy moment at the end of Jesus' life. If you remember, uh, Rochelle taught a few weeks ago and she taught about uh, this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's kind of this famous moment between the father and the son and Jesus is sweating blood and he's agonizing over if there's another way, he wants another way. And whatever that conversation is like between him and the father, we only hear one side of it, right? We don't get to hear what the father says, but we hear Jesus' response, which is not my will, but your will be done. And he gets up and he walks into this moment here that we just read. Right, Judas comes in, he betrays him, identifies him for the leaders so that they can arrest him with a kiss, which is obviously like profoundly sad and ironic. And then the the soldiers are coming to arrest him, so a disciple steps in and and draws his sword and and cuts at one of their, their ears, and then Jesus says this, starting in verse 52, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? That's such a strange thing to say. I'm the kind of person that when I'm reading, like some, some people, it's like they read... And they're just going on to the next thing. I'm the kind of person that when someone says something in a weird way, I get kind of fixated on it and I can't move on. And this is weird to me because Jesus says in verse 53, this guy is trying to protect him, one of the disciples, and he says, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That sounds to me like Jesus is saying I have agency here. Do you not know I'm choosing to walk in this? But the next verse, he says, how would that happen? It must happen this way. So on one hand, you've got him talking about agency. and the other hand, you've got him talking about it it must happen this way. And, and further on in the scripture, right, this all happens. The scriptures could be fulfilled, those two things right next to each other which can make some of us very uncomfortable, make us want to flip and turn the page. And for me, it just makes my mind, like, snag. I can't move on. I have all these questions. How do these things fit together? What's, how does it work? What's he trying to say? What's the theology that's happening behind the curtain here? And if you're like me and your mind gets snagged there, I want you to just for a second let all those thoughts, picture them coming out, and put them in a little suitcase underneath you, and they're great thoughts. Love all those questions. You're welcome to unpack them over lunch after this sermon, but that's not what this sermon's going to be about, so you can... Slide that suitcase under your chair. We'll deal with all of that another time. That's someone else's sermon to teach. Because what I want to talk about today is not the theology that's happening behind this moment, how all these things fit together, how it works, how obedience, walking to the cross, worked with whatever was prophesied. All of that is great, but I want to talk about how it felt for Jesus in this moment. Not how it worked behind the scenes, not what's going on theologically. I want to talk about About the image this moment gives us us of the experience, the sensations that Jesus had when he was walking in obedience to the Father. I think this verse, specifically verse 53, gives us some insight into what it felt like to walk for the Father in obedience with the Son, working together in a partnership, the two of them. I think it gives us an image, an insight into what that relationship and that dynamic was like, into what obedience feels like. And that's what I want us to talk about today. I, I don't even like using the word obedience. I'm going to use it a lot, but it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, and it might make some of you uncomfortable, because I have seen and experienced, and I know many of you have, uh, places and spaces that are a little more controlling. I think some of us have a sense of Christianity itself, that it's a little bit controlling. We might even understand our dynamic with God as being a little bit more controlling Um, And obedience kind of, for me, calls to mind this like forced feeling of, of a controlling dynamic. I'm a little bit of, I have an addiction to learning. I love to learn. I'm always in school for something. And recently I've been studying something called coercive control, the psychology of coercive control. Basically the mechanisms, what happens in the brain, how it works when you build a space or you have a relationship and the dynamic is controlling. Like, what are the key factors that make it controlling? How does that work? And I've been learning a ton about controlling dynamics and controlling relationships. Basically, you have a person who has an agenda. They have something they want you to do. They have a goal in their mind. You can, yeah, perfect. They want to get you to do what they think you should do, right, they have this road that they want you to go down. And when they're controlling, they use all their power, they leverage all their power to try to make you go down that road. That's how they do it, using the power that they have. And often, what makes controlling dynamics so unhealthy is, it is the fastest way to get you to go down this road is to kind of erase you as a person. They want to bypass the person. If you imagine like a little car going down this road, then controlling dynamic, you kind of snip the wires that the person who drives that car has and you take over the car. You're like remote control driving it so that you can make it go down the path that you think it should go down. And as I'm learning all these things, I have become more and more like obsessively into the way that God seems to operate. Because if anyone would be justified in being controlling, it would be God, right? His goal, the problem with controlling dynamics is someone wants me to do what they think I should do, they don't know what's best for me, but God does. He knows exactly what's best for me. If he was gonna be controlling and make me do what was best for me, the agenda would be a good one. And he has all the power in the world, he could utilize all this power, but when I encounter the scriptures and when I experience this world, God seems to be inviting me to be an active participant. He seems not to bypass my personhood, right? Every single time I read a command, that's an indicator that he's inviting my personhood in. Instead of going around me, instead of not utilizing me, he's inviting me in. He's inviting me to participate in this partnership that's so different than a controlling dynamic, right? And that's why I love this moment between the Father and the Son as as Jesus walks in obedience to the cross, I think it's this beautiful picture of empowered partnership. I think the sensation, the feeling that Jesus is having is one of empowered partnership, okay? So all we're really gonna do today is I'm gonna talk through some of those factors that are present in a controlling dynamic, and then we're gonna look at how it goes down for the Father and the Son and kind of do a compare and contrast. And the goal here is for you to kind of sit with and notice Maybe not what you believe theologically, but, but maybe notice how it feels in your dynamic with God. Notice if it feels more controlling or if you're operating in this empowered sense of partnership. Okay, so the first thing that happens in a controlling dynamic is often that you try to separate someone from their own preferences. There's no space for preferences, right? If I'm trying to get a car to go down this road and people want to drive a different way, that just limits the possibilities of control. I want to cut those wires, make sure they don't have any feelings about it for themselves. And when we think about our dynamic with God, a lot of us kind of function this way, as if we have a feeling, a feeling that may be counter to what he's wanting for our lives and we immediately feel a sense of shame about it, right? We try to repress it. We try to get rid of it. We feel like it's horrible. At best, it's going to be inconvenient. At worst, it's sinful, And we think about moving forward in our relationship with God and maturity in Christ as having less of our own feelings and more of his his feelings. Like the goal would be that we kind of get erased. Our preferences and our feelings kind of disappear and there's not really space for them in this dynamic. Our feelings are inconvenient to God. They're offensive to God. right? But when we look at this situation as Jesus walks to the cross, there seems to be so much room for him to have feelings. His own feelings, right? Rochelle taught about this so beautifully in the garden. She unpacked this agonizing anxiety that Jesus is feeling. Why is he feeling anxiety in Garden of Gethsemane? Because he doesn't want to do it this way. He's asking for another way. And even at the end of that prayerful conversation, what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. What does that imply? My will, your will, they've got to diverge somewhere, Otherwise, why do I have to submit one to the other? He doesn't say at the end of his prayer, now my will is your will, we are one. And if anybody should have the same will, the same feelings, the same preferences as the father, shouldn't it be the son? They're made of of the same substance, the same essence. They're both God, right? But even they have different wills, different feelings, different preferences in this situation. And we know Jesus was without sin, so that wasn't something broken, that wasn't something deficient in him. I don't know what it all means, but I know when I look at the Garden of Gethsemane, it seems clear whatever this dynamic feels like, the experience of it between the father and the son, there's so much space for the son to feel anxiety about what's happening next, for him to feel the human feeling of I don't want to do that. That's what it feels like when when you're in a dynamic that's not controlling. You feel like there's space for your emotions. And and even that partnership piece that God's going for, it's facilitated by you having your own preferences and your feelings. That's what partnership is. It's mutual vulnerability. It's mutual sharing. When we live in this controlling dynamic where we try to erase our feelings or repress them, get rid of them, don't bring them to God, just get them out of the room first. Or at least be done with them by the time you end the conversation with God, right? Right? We're actually robbing ourselves of this experience of partnership that makes space for our own emotions. I think the great gift of the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the great gifts is that you can feel the humanity of just having a feeling. Like maybe it's just part of being human to feel like you don't want to do something that's painful. Okay, so second thing that I want us to talk about is when you have uh, this road you want someone to go down and now they've got their preferences, they've got feelings, say there's a little wiggle room for that. The next option for how you're gonna limit them, control what they do, help them stay on this path, is by forcing them. Make sure there's no exit ramps on this, right? You gotta make sure no exit ramps. We don't want an exit ramps. We want them to feel forced. And in our dynamic with God, a lot of us, have done this, right, sometimes we even do it to ourselves, we tell ourselves, don't think about it, there's no option, there's no thing to think about, just pretend this is the only option, and as long as I do that, I'll be okay, and the experience of it, the sensation of it for us, is that we feel forced, we feel like God has made us to do something, but with God and the Father, Jesus seems to have this sense of agency, right, he seems to have a sense of agency, let's look at the verse one more time. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I don't know all that that means. But when I hear it, I don't think Jesus felt forced. I don't think Jesus felt forced. And to me, maybe that's obvious, but to me that's like deeply profound. Mark called me this week to talk about the sermon I don't know how he was feeling about it, could sense a little little nervousness perhaps. And he would not say that. But as we were talking through it, it's like, why would you pick this passage? It's such a tricky one. There's like landmines everywhere. And there's so many great moments with Jesus in the Bible, you know. Any one of them would have worked. But this one I picked and I can't let go of. Because Jesus didn't feel forced. Like, in this moment that surely if ever there was a moment that's been ordained from eternity past, that's been prophesied throughout the scriptures, that's eternally essential and significant, even in that moment, Jesus didn't feel forced. That's so important to me that he had this sensation in this moment, he had a sensation of agency. He had a sensation of active participation. This matters to me because I'm so tired of sitting across the table from someone who's walking in like extravagant, beautiful, glorious obedience to God and they're amazing and everyone's like, wow, look at their life and you sit down with them and you talk to them for five minutes, for 10 minutes, for an hour and it becomes clear. They feel no joy. They feel beaten down and broken and weary and anxiety in every part of them because they feel forced. They feel like God is making them do this thing. That experience of feeling forced, it's not good for the human brain. It doesn't bear good fruit. And it doesn't bear good fruit in that partnership, in, in the trust of the Father. It leads to resentment. It leads to bitterness. It's really hard on the human brain. We don't do well when we feel forced. right? It, it's the source of trauma. Trauma itself is such a complicated thing, but often people try to understand, like, how do I know if something's traumatic or not? Trauma is defined by a process in your brain that, that sometimes events happen to us and instead of like processing them like an experience that happened, our brain sort of short circuits and it fragments and it stores these things in different pockets and that's how we know trauma has happened. We can see it in the brain. It's a different response. It's a fractured brain. And when they study trauma, this, this guy, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, he's um, an amazing psychiatrist. He wrote the book, Body Keeps the Score. He's been studying trauma for a long, long time, since the the 60s, and he noticed there was kind of this trend in the kinds of experiences that trigger that response in the brain. Two people can have the same catastrophic event happen to them, and one person can walk away with things they have to work through, deep things they have to process, a lot of healing needs to happen, but they don't have trauma and the other person experiencing the same event can walk away with trauma. And the reason for that is because a different process is triggered in our brain by the experience of feeling forced. Okay, he says, being able to move and do something to protect oneself is a critical factor in determining whether or not a horrible experience will leave long-lasting scars. Essentially, trauma is a situation characterized by the inability to take the actions necessary to protect yourself. Trauma is about being in a state where you feel that nothing you do can stop what's happening to you, right? Trauma, it's not whether you do or not protect yourself. That's not what makes it happen. It's the sensation, the feeling that there's nothing you could do, that there's no, it's a feeling of there are no options to protect yourself. Think about that for a second and the fact that God knew that about trauma long before we did because he created the human brain. And now listen to this verse again, one more time. This guy steps in trying to protect him and Jesus says, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Does that sound like a guy who feels like there are no options for protection? No. No. It sounds like someone who doesn't feel forced, and sometimes not feeling forced is exactly the thing that we need to empower us to walk into the thing that God is asking us to do, right? It's that sense of being empowered. I think we don't like this because we have this fear that if there's off ramps on this road, we're gonna take them, right? We think if there's options, we're gonna take them. So we try as Christians to help ourselves, to protect ourselves by limiting the options. I hear this all the time in premarital counseling where people are like, let's take that word, right? Off the table, don't even think of it. Don't think that word, it's not an option. Don't put it on the table, right? They limit their options. They think that will help. It will help them accomplish the goal. And if the goal is to do the thing that God has asked you to do, if the goal is to get to your metaphorical cross no matter what, then yes. Feeling forced is a very efficient, very effective way to do it. When the brain feels trapped, it will do, it will continue to walk forward. If your goal is to do the thing that God's asked you to do, then feeling forced is a good mechanism. But if you want to do it while you walk in the fruit of the spirit, it's impossible. A brain that feels forced will not experience the fruit of the spirit. We know that from research, from mental health research. Feeling force limits our ability to feel things like joy and peace and patience. And if you want to just do the thing, you can feel forced. But if you want a partnership, if you want to walk down the road that God has for you, like holding his hand and feeling like he's trustworthy to walk with, having a person that you can lay your head on his chest at night and feel safe with as you do this hard thing, then feeling forced will never get that for you. Feeling forced may accomplish the goal, but it will destroy any potential for that intimacy and partnership as you do it. Right? It's not good for the human brain. And the third thing that I want us to talk about on our, our slide here about controlling people, controlling dynamics, is going to be that in this controlling dynamic, we use the guardrails of fear and shame, and we're motivated by threats. So what I mean by that is if you're looking at this road that someone wants you to go down, this dynamic of control, now you've got preferences going on, people got feelings, now you've got offering, exit strategies people could take, off ramps, all the place. The way that you're now going to keep them in line is by kind of putting these guardrails in place, these emotions that are really, really help us stay in line, like fear and shame. And that fear and shame, it comes because behind you, pushing you forward, motivating you are these threats, Right, they're motivating you along the way. Threats sound like things like, you know, God's going to abandon you. If you do that, you can do it, but God won't be there for you. Or what if you don't even know the will of God? Well, then you're in real danger, right? You're about to catastrophically mess up your life. If you take the wrong road, you don't know it, it falls off the edge of a cliff, you're in danger. We may not hear that in our mind, but those kinds of threats produce the fruit of emotions like fear and shame. And those emotions effectively operate like guardrails to keep you on this course, and we, we hate fear and shame. They feel bad, everyone hates them, they're unpleasant. Everyone wants to get rid of fear and shame, but fear and shame, at the end of the day, they're, they're this gift that your brain gives you to do the thing it thinks is gonna keep you safe. Fear and shame, if, if these threats behind you are true, then fear and shame are doing the kindest thing in the world by keeping you on this ramp. They're very effective ways. For many of us, fear and shame have been a really good friend Now, in this new dynamic you're invited into, we have a better friend, and that's love. We have a new kind of guardrail that keeps us on the path over here. It's love. It's it's a trust in the bond and the attachment between us and the Father. It's a trust that that partnership is there. We're wrapped up in it. It keeps us on the the path. That's how love works. Let's look again at, at verse 53 and try to notice what you hear here about this dynamic between the father and the son. This guy's just tried to protect him. He says, put away your sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? This sense of agency, the the sense of stability, empowered agency that we hear here, it doesn't come, notice it doesn't come from Jesus' power. right? He doesn't say, which he could have, Do you think I cannot call down like that 12 legions of angels? Do you think I could not knock all these guys down with one word? It's not his power that's giving him comfort in this moment. It's his dynamic with the Father. It's his trust in the Father. Do you think I cannot call on my Father? Do you think my Father is not with me? Do you think his love is not there no matter what? Do you think my Father doesn't have my back? Whatever went down in that garden, we only hear Jesus' side of it. I don't know what the Father says, but I know that Jesus comes out of it feeling like the Father has my back. The Father loves me. And he talks, in this verse, he talks like that love trumps everything. He talks like it's the most important thing in eternity and it overtakes everything. And nothing seems more important in that verse than the love between the Father and the Son this bond between them, this trust that the Son has, that the Father would send down a legion of angels. Go back to the slide with the two columns. Think about how different these feelings are for a second, like how different those sensations are. And try to think about your dynamic with God. This sensation and this controlling dynamic is fear and shame, it's anxiety. It's that like pit of your stomach feeling that if you do this thing, it's gonna be bad going to cause death to your relationship with God. He's going to leave you. This feeling over here, this feeling of love, do you know that feeling? Like an exhale. The love of God compels you. The love of God keeps you safe and stable on this path. Promises that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you that there is nothing that you can do, no choice you can make, no exit ramp you could take that can separate you from the love of God. There's no place you can go that his spirit will not find you. That's what love sounds like. It sounds like no matter what, the Father has your back no matter what. And I know that for some of us, that feels really scary, right? We've got that fear even now creeping in. Perhaps if you say that, people will think that you mean they can do whatever they want. I hear you, That's Fear trying to keep you there. It's trying to keep you safe. I respect that. The church has been saying that for a long time. The early church said that as well to Paul over and over again. He had to answer this question of, like, Paul, if you keep talking about this love and this grace concept, people are going to just do whatever they want. And Paul's answer is basically, don't you know how it works? Like, love. Like, don't you know how love works? Don't you know how it feels when you're in partnership with someone you love and you trust? Don't you know how love binds you to someone in a way that you don't want to do whatever you want? You want to do whatever the two of you want? That's how love works. Love helps us stay on that path. And we are motivated over here. The fear and shame keep us on that path. And we're pushed forward down this path by threats. And over here... We're hemmed in by love and we've got promises motivating us instead of threats all around. Promises behind us, that promises will catch us if we fall, right, and promises to the side of us, promises like he'll never leave us, promises like he's with us always, promises like there's nowhere we can go from his love, and then we have promises ahead, like that when we're looking down this path, what keeps us going, we're hemmed in by love and we see ahead a promise for something better on this path, right, ultimately, when Jesus pulls back the curtain and explains why he went to the cross, he talks about this promise ahead. There's a, a verse in Hebrews, and basically in the Hebrew church, these people are enduring horrible things. And they don't know how to keep going in their obedience to God. And the writer of Hebrews says this, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. As you walk down this path, look at Jesus. He's just ahead of you. He's a great example for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did he, why did he do it? Why did he endure the, endure the cross? For the joy set before him, right? The promise that motivates forward is the belief that there's, like, something better down this path. And Jesus chose the cross because of the joy set before him. He believed that there was something better at the end. And, and that enabled him to endure the cross, Shame and the pain of it, right? This road for him was not nice. That's why he had a preference to do things differently, but he wanted the end result. And so, for the joy set before him, he was able to to survive, to, to keep going, even when it felt hard, even when he wanted, had temptation to turn away, right? It sounds like when I hear about that, when I hear the joy set before him, he endured the cross, I think of the concept of delayed gratification. You guys familiar with delayed gratification? Yes, it's a very common human thing. It's important for us. It's actually like a big sign of predictor of us being healthy humans. Delayed gratification is the resistance to the temptation of immediate pleasure or an immediate relief in the hope of obtaining a valuable and long-lasting reward in the long term. Right, That's the kind of promise that sometimes is ahead of us. Like saying no to the immediate pleasure for the long-term gratification. This isn't a Christian concept that's made up to control you and make you go through hard things so you can get a payoff. This is the human brain. This is what it has to be able to do to survive. It has to be able to say no sometimes to a temporary pleasure for an ultimate, better, long-lasting reward. The ultimate picture of this is an experiment I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It's called the Marshmallow Experiment. I don't know if that's a technical name, from Stanford. I took these pictures from it because they made me so happy, especially like this little girl on the bottom just like, Staring at that marshmallow. Basically, what happens is if you're not familiar with it, the caregiver gives the kid a marshmallow and they say, Hey, I'm gonna leave the room for a second. And if you don't eat this marshmallow, when I come back, I'm gonna give you two marshmallows. So all you have to do is not eat the marshmallow when I'm gone. In the, in the videos of this kind of experiment being done, you, the kids like smell the marshmallow, they're like lick it. It's really funny. Anyway. They have to wait, they have to say no to this instant relief for the the long-term reward of two marshmallows. And when the kids are able to do this, it's one of the best predictors of healthy outcomes in their life. Their SAT scores are better, they make healthier relationship choices later on, because this is something healthy brains need to be able to do. They need to be able to make decisions not just based on instant reward, but based on what they ultimately want long-term, decisions that align with their values and that offer something better. Right, now here's the thing. They did this experiment first, and they did it a few years later a different way with a variation trying to find the factors that influenced if kids are able to do this. And the biggest factor is how much they trust their caregiver. No amount of threats keep them from eating that marshmallow. In fact, the more threatened they feel, the more likely they are to eat the marshmallow. But when they trust and love and feel safe in their relationship with the caregiver, when the, when the caregiver leaves the room, they know they're coming back. They trust them that they're gonna bring two marshmallows and that bond enables them to withstand the pressure of wanting to eat the marshmallow. But the brain that feels threatened, the brain that feels forced, the brain that feels coerced, it cannot do delayed gratification. When we are in fight or flight, when we feel threatened, we cannot do delayed gratification. It's a higher cognitive function that requires us to feel safe and stable. In order to do it, it requires us to have a sensation of abundancy, not scarcity. I think some of us have been caught in this self-fulfilling prophecy loop because we have this controlling dynamic with God where we are like, Fabs, you can't tell people they have options because let me tell you, I had options and I made terrible choices. And I do every time I have terrible options. I can't think that it's okay to do things because then I'll do them. And that might be true if you've been operating in a controlling dynamic. If there are threats and control in your life, then anytime there is an off ramp, you will not have the ability to keep going for a future reward because brains can't do that. And then every time you make the bad decision, it furthers your narrative that you need this fear and control to keep you safe. But in these moments, these like exhale moments when you feel safe and loved, you're not in fight or flight, you're able to make a decision not because you're afraid and not because you're threatened, not because fear and not because shame are hemming you in, because you feel so loved that you're safe to choose what you want more, what you want most, right? Jesus was able to do that because he believed there was a joy set before him at the end of the line. He sat down at the right hand of God in whose presence there is fullness of joy, way more than two marshmallows, and pleasure forevermore way more than whatever fleeting pleasure this earth offers, right? This dynamic between the father and the son is just, I just am kind of like obsessively in love with it. And I was thinking about how much I talk about the father in this sermon. And I only realized this last night. It was funny because I've been talking about the father a lot in my own life. I've been telling friends and I was even telling our staff this week that I've been noticing that over the last like five or ten years in my relationship with God, I've come to have a real affinity or connection with Jesus. Like, I feel like I've, I know the sound of his voice. I know the tone he uses. I know his posture when he talks to me. He feels like such a great friend. I trust him as my savior. I love my dynamic with Jesus, but I've noticed I don't have much of a sensation about the Father. And I was telling her, I didn't even think about the connection with the sermon, but I was telling the staff this week, like, I, I just really want that. I want to feel like, I know what the Father sounds like when he talks. Like, I know what the tone of his voice is. I think part of the reason that it's hard for me to connect like that with the Father is that I, like many of you, have been a part of spaces or a version of Christianity where words are taken out of the Father's mouth and they're used in a very controlling way. And the power that he has has been used or harnessed, leveraged, to get me to do things that other people thought I should do. And so I'm not really sure how to, like, approach this person, a father, I can't really tell what he sounds like. you know And I was thinking about that last night when thinking about this sermon, and just I think that's one of the reasons I love this so much. In the garden that night, Jesus and the Father, they, they had some kind of exchange. That's what Jesus was doing in the garden. And I don't know what the Father said. I don't know what his tone sounded like. I don't know what words he used or what his voice sounded like when he talked to the son. But I do see what happens afterwards. I do see how the son feels. I do see the son having this confidence that he can express all of his emotions. I do see him feeling free to do that. I do see him walking out of there with this confident sense that he is walking empowered with agency into whatever happens next. I do see him feeling confident that that he could call on the name of the Father at any moment. All of that tells me I may not know what the Father's voice sounds like, but I know what it produces. I know what it feels like to walk in a dynamic with the Father because I get to see the Son do it here. And that's my encouragement for all of you this morning is just to notice the places. Where maybe we're mishearing the voice of the Father, or maybe someone else has taken over the mic and is like puppeting and telling us it's the Father, but it doesn't produce this kind of fruit. Reclaim that dynamic. That's the dynamic that Jesus purchased for you on the cross. He wanted you to have the same dynamic with the Father that he himself had. That's the prize. That's the reason. That's part of the joy that was set before him. So I'm going to have you guys just shut your eyes, and Brian, you guys can come up. And I'm just going to, I know I said a lot of things in the sermon, so I'm just going to have you shut your eyes, and I'm just going to try to talk through these little things, drop them like, visualize them like pebbles dropping into your soul, and just try to notice if there's any place where there's sensitivity, where there's resistance or woundedness, and that might be the place that the Father is inviting you to experience something new in your dynamic. So some of you may have felt that there's no space for your own feelings and your preferences, your humanity and your relationship with the Father. I just want you to notice that, if that sensation is there, and notice that there's room for you to have your feelings, whatever they are. They're part of this partnership that you have with God. Some of you may be feeling trapped, forced like you have no agency, want you to notice today that God speaks to you as if you've been given dominion over your own body. He speaks to you as though he wants you to be involved and participate in your life. Some of you may feel threatened. Fear and shame may be keeping you in line, keeping you safe. You may be scared to even let go of fear and shame. Take your eyes off of fear and shame and off of the threats for a second and just notice what it feels like to hear that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. There is nowhere you can hide from him. There's nothing he needs from you in order to give you grace and mercy. Nothing you do can get him to withhold grace and mercy and kindness from you. There's nothing you can do to get him to be more kind in your life because he's not holding any of it back. you need to know that the options you face aren't holiness versus happiness, aren't good versus bad. They're short-term relief or long-term pressure. They're they're one marshmallow or two. Just ask God to give you faith and promises ahead to believe that there is a second marshmallow, even if you don't know what it is. To believe in it so much that you feel joy even in the anticipation of it. been waiting a long time for the second marshmallow. <laughs> it's getting hard to believe that your father is coming back. It's getting hard to believe that you have a consistent caregiver who will return with two marshmallows for you and you're tired of sitting there alone. I want you to know you can call upon your father. Father, Father. Everything you see in the life of Jesus, all the love that pours out of him, all the fruit of the Spirit he walks in, he is able to do that because the love of the Father is so supportive and wrapped up around him. It's their dynamic that enables him to walk in obedience. I want you to feel that love of a good, good Father. God, I just ask you right now, Father, I ask you right now, our Father, Father of everybody in this room who is in heaven, who has the power and the glory, and your name is holy, it's hallowed. I want to ask you, Father, to give us this day our daily bread of your love, of your provision, of your grace, of your mercy, of your kindness, and pray that you would set us free from controlling dynamics, especially when it relates to you, and you would help us walk in empowered partnership, ask you to do that in the name of Jesus.
1: Amen. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.